Thank you everyone for joining to what I believe is going to be one of the most exciting sessions that we're going to have for, for the entire day. Where in your organization do you have a process or a task where you would wish to have a superhuman brain that never gets tired doing it? About a topic that is very much impactful already today. We are using artificial intelligence for predictive maintenance. And our clients are usually sovereign funds or uh, like blue chip companies. Topic that fundamentally changes the way we transact, we interact. More and more there is an interest in exploring the benefits of, of Bitcoin mining and we govern relationships. And, and I think that's where AI then really becomes powerful if AI is combined with other technologies like blockchain. It's about the crypto economy. Peter, thanks a lot for coming on the Proof of Work podcast. I got to know about you from someone that works in your team, Gabriel, and uh, who I call Gabby. Gabby and I met when uh, he came to NYU for a semester, and I had the good fortune of meeting him there, and we became just very quick friends. And uh, I was studying blockchain and digital currencies uh, at NYU. I studied under Professor Ian D'Souza, who sits in the board of Block Tower Capital, and I used to always talk about Bitcoin and everything to Gabby and other friends as well. And then uh, after Gabby graduated, he returned back to Germany, he graduated, and he got consulting role at uh, Roland Berger. I was like very happy for him. And, you know, we all started living our lives. And then I noticed uh, that quite recently he became a senior consultant and was doing stuff in the Web3 digital assets, Bitcoin space in Dubai. And I hit him up. I'm like, we need we need to do a catch up. What are you doing in this space <laughs> at all? And we had a good catch up. And then he spoke about you. He spoke very highly about you. And then I got a chance to meet you and speak with you. And uh, you've been in the crypto space for so long. You've been in crypto earlier than me. And I have all Always so much respect for people who've been in crypto back in the 2013-2014 days. So look, it's uh, my pleasure, my greatest pleasure to have you on the Proof of Work podcast. So thank you for taking out the time here. Thank you so much. And I mean, the, the, the story on how we're connected, I think is really funny, right? And it shows you how, how um, unpredictable sometimes the crypto ecosystem is. So thanks again for having me. No, my pleasure. Now, Pierre, I got to know you, but uh, for our listeners, you've got a very fascinating background to get into blockchain. So I want to start off by, you know, getting to know your journey into blockchain and crypto coming from a very professional consulting and energy consulting background. What piqued your interest into blockchain and crypto? Yeah, that's actually a, a funny story, I guess. Or let me start, let me start with, the, uh, with, with how my entire career journey started just very briefly, right? So I, um, I started as a software developer. So I studied, I had a bachelor in information technology and at that point in time, you know, in uh, in Europe, um, if you wanted to get into blue chip companies or strategy consulting firms, an IT degree was not the fanciest thing to have on your CV, right? So um, I did an MBA on top. And that MBA got me into the energy space. So I wrote my thesis uh, at the end about comparing two of the major energy companies and the internationalization strategies and so on. And then got hired by one of them. I worked in a strategy team in the um, uh, investors, uh, investor relations team. And then also joined uh, the head of strategy in setting up an in-house consulting team for uh, that company at that point in time, which was a um, 80,000 people company, multinational and so on. And um, so basically then I completely forgot about my you know entire IT background and so on and so forth. And I was purely focusing on business and energy, worked along the entire value chain. And fast forward, I became partner in that, in that firm as well. And then around 2013-ish, we got a call from um, a uh, one of our sister companies uh, that had a joint venture in Dubai um, with one of the major energy companies here. 
uh, and they had a problem. So I went basically over for just one project to Dubai. Um, and uh, that basically then was the starting point, if you want to say so, of me being very attached to the Middle East and me really getting the flavor of what the Middle East is about. And at the same time, the entire industry I was working in, energy basically, had a bit of an identity crisis in the sense that, you know, we had the rise of the central power generation. Um, so why would you need uh, central power generation, oil and gas, nuclear, and, and so on and so forth? Uh, at the same time, everyone in certain countries could do retail of energy. Uh, every retail company could get a license. So energy companies were really asking themselves, okay, what's next for us? Like, what's the future of, of energy going to look like? And uh, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team that was, you know, thinking about um, the setup of, of innovation hubs for for the company. And with that, then also thinking about what are the themes that could define the future of energy. And one of the themes back then was blockchain. That was in 2014. Yeah. And uh, I have to admit, I mean, it took me it took me a while to understand the significant impact of the technology. But then with so many of us, like once it clicks and once you see the entrance of the rabbit hole, you never get out, right? So totally. the moment this clicked for me, I was like blown away by it. And then obviously you, you learn everything about Bitcoin, the Ethereum ICO was coming up later and so on. Um, so this is actually what got me into, into, into blockchain in the first place. The idea of what can the energy industry do next? And it was really based on the assumption that we're going to have a machine-to-machine -machine economy. We have assets interacting with, with each other and you need a trust layer that is actually managing all of this. And there, there came blockchain, so to say. Yeah, look, I, I totally, first of all, great journey. And secondly, I, I'm totally with you. So I was in my final year of undergrad in 2011 and uh, I had uh, got this uh, image. I used to stay on campus uh, in Brazil been Australia and uh, I had this image that this guy trades uh, foreign exchange and equities uh, during his free time and uh, so there was one of my friend he said that you should look into Bitcoin and that was like the first time I got to know about Bitcoin but because I was like in my last year of undergrad and I was freshly you know learning about all these macroeconomic principles and monetary economics and all I was like this seems like a, this is too good to be true like I didn't go deep to the blockchain layer I just looked at Bitcoin and I'm like this sounds like like a virtual gaming asset more than anything. I think this is a fad. So I didn't go deep into it. And then in 2013, when there was a bull run again, uh, and there was this, you know, whole narrative about uh, Silk Road and all that stuff, uh, I was like, told you so. So my confirmation bias again told me that this is something not to be looked at. It was only when I was in uh, 2015, I joined private wealth management in Australia and Bitcoin has been legal in Australia for quite some time as well since 2013. I started researching it from an alternative asset space. And then when Japan started talking about Bitcoin uh, being a legal method for payment in the parliament when they were introducing it, I took an active interest in it and got into it as well. And once I got into it, I agree with you. Once you get into the rabbit hole, once you understand what this convergence of incentive system and blockchain technology and distributed computing of the Bitcoin network means, it's just like you can't get out of it. You're like, it's the future of money. So yeah, very interesting journey. I feel like a lot of people who enter the space from like traditional uh, background has got a similar way of getting it, don't you think? No, absolutely. I know. I mean, I know a couple of of, um, of friends and colleagues and acquaintances, like you know, from traditional blue chip companies, that uh, then found their way from their industry to that technology and then got stuck. Right. So, which is good news, by the way. Which means in every blue chip company, we have someone that is <laughs> a crypto buyer, <laughs> so to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now. 
I have read, uh, you know, first of all, you write very well. I think you should write more often on Medium and blogs and all. Thanks. But uh, I read one of your Medium blogs and uh, I loved uh, how you discuss about crypto providing the trust and verification mechanisms needed for responsible AI development. Can you walk me through, especially because this is the talk of the town yeah. now, blockchain is like old news when it comes to venture capital. Everything is now generative AI. Indeed. Uh, that's the flavor. So can you walk me through why crypto is so crucial to optimize and protect the AI? Yeah, so the thesis behind that is the following. If you look at AI as a technology and where it will probably go, then for me, it's very, it's more likely than unlikely that AI is going to drive into centralization rather than decentralization, right? Because yeah. the more, the bigger your model, the more data is in your model, the better, the more you concentrate and so on and so forth. And already today, we are in a situation where it's for some generative parts of AI very hard for the majority of the population to tell if it's generated by AI, if it's fake, or if it's if it's yeah. real, right? Um, so, and I think crypto is the is the perfect key to the lock of AI, so to say, because we have a, a, a centralization technology that is very powerful and that I think will do very well for us as humanity. Then you have the decentralization technology, you know, that keeps that in check and ensures that the data that AI is feeding on is verified um, through a blockchain layer, yeah, which also is beneficial for yeah. AI because if if the AI is accessing data that belongs to my data wallet that is in on on chain, then it's a win-win to a certain extent because a, I can decide if I want to monetize the data that belongs to me. And and on the other hand, if AI is if the AI is accessing data that is verified by a user, you can be sure that it's also not trained on bogus data, right? Um, so that's yeah. why I, I really think this is um, this is a key synergy that's going to play out. Um, and there are many, but. In addition to that, there are also many other use cases where I think, I mean, the synergy isn't that dramatic, but it's, it's definitely there. But this entire data protection layer for me is is, is a clear case. Yeah. Look, look, I'm with you. I'm, I'm going to deep dive into this, but uh, I want to bring up this point because it was part of your uh, Medium blog as well. One of your quotes that I really love, only the combination, I love this specification there, only the combination of blockchain with AI and internet of things, which people have forgotten as well now as a narrative, but only the combination of blockchain with AI and IoT will create amazing use cases. Yeah. I want... Can you, can you expand on that particular quote uh, as to how you see this convergence as so powerful? And then I would love to deep dive and discuss on this a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I think maybe in general, maybe it's, uh, if you look at the history of innovation, then um, the majority of really disruptive innovation never came from one single technology. It was always the combination of yeah. tech, right? Um, and I think we have now these three technologies that had all had their own kind of single spotlight moment. AI is having this, its single spotlight moment now. But I think you will realize relatively quickly that if you want to have mass scale use cases and, and really use cases that will drive prosperity of humanity more than just, you know, being a very knowledgeable assistant to what you do and, and you know, making your work more efficient. Um, you need the combination of these three, three technologies. So in supply chain, for instance, will be one of the key elements, right? Uh, be, because we already had this dilemma of blockchain and data, you know, it's the 
classic yes. garbage in, garbage out kind of thing. So here you need IoT sure. to verify that the, the oracles actually are putting real data on chain. Yeah, correct. And now we have AI, yep. which is supercharging the use of the database that has been created. Yeah, so so for me, really, this triangle is um, is where, where the real innovation is going to happen going forward. I'm in agreement with you. So I, I'm not going to name the professor, but I remember one of the professors uh, who was, who still is anti-Bitcoin and because he's anti-Bitcoin, he's anti-blockchain as well, in a way he's, so you would have come across these individuals as well. People who are pro-Bitcoin, pro-crypto, pro-blockchain. Then there are people who are non-pro-crypto, but are pro-blockchain. And then there are people who are like blockchain is a useless technology as well. Yeah. Crypto is useless, blockchain yeah, is yeah. useless. So he he comes, he belongs to that category. That blockchain is a useless technology. It should be kept as that theoretical, you know, 1980s concept that it should just be put as a digital notary as well. Nothing more useful can come out of it. So he belongs to that category. But I remember he was very big on internet of things and i mentioned at that time this is around 2017 2018 pre-nyu like just used to meet a lot of professors during meetups and entrepreneurs in australia so this uh professor you know i used to tell them that like i don't see iot doing well without block like it would do so well if you add the blockchain immutable layer to it as well because then you're getting information from machines that are non-tampered and like you can do so many things and at that time you know we at least i didn't have the foresight that we're gonna have AI the way we have now. But yeah, totally with the, the convergence of all this, it's going to bring so many productive technologies, further innovations from it. So I'm totally with you. Yeah. And uh, and I mean, this was the, the intersection between blockchain and IoT was part of, you know, our initial thesis about this machine to machine economy, because the idea is that the, the idea was that through blockchain, out of many use cases, we're lower, we're enabling use cases that had previously a threshold of costs of microtransactions. So, and now microtransactions yes. are way more feasible, so to say. You don't need blockchain for yes. microtransactions. That's also clear. But if you want to have it on a decentral yep. ledger and you want to have it um, basically bulletproof, then then this is the way to go. Um, so, so this combination of, let's say, assets that are producing data and selling their data through whatever system is, the, again, the best merge of, of these two technologies. So that was our very initial thesis at the beginning that at least IoT and blockchain, there needs to be a play. And I mean, you see it like most of the original companies that are working on, on proper data feeding. Uh, there's always, as soon as it comes to real life assets, there's always IoT involved, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, look, totally. I want to bring a project into our discussion only for a brief period because you're a crypto OG back in the day. I mean, you're still a crypto OG because you've been there since uh, back in the day. There was a very popular IoT crypto. IOTA? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, it, I mean, I, I don't, less I comment about it, the better, but like uh, it had a thesis, but it pro didn't really execute on it. And that's where I really want to get your take because you are working at one of the top professional management consulting organizations in the entire world, Roland Berger. And uh, I know that uh, you are based out of Dubai and Dubai is so forward thinking, implementing all kinds of technology that I, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, like Dubai actually has got its own blockchain strategy, right? When it comes to urban planning. So being like working at a top management consulting firm like Roland Berger, and then working from Dubai, where the, the city council, the ministers over there are pro-blockchain and using it for urban planning and city development. When can we see the earliest form of the convergence of AI, blockchain, and IoT, like practically? 
I think, I mean, um, you probably uh, you probably are aware that one of the, the main trends that I think financial institutions are looking into when it comes to the entire digital asset and Web3 space, space is this entire narrative of real-world asset tokenization. Yes. Right? Yes. And if we want to think about really creating benefits of real-world tokenization, let's just take a power plant, for example, like a renewable power plant. Then if you own a token of this power plant, you want to exactly know, or that should be the benefit of holding a token, how much power is it producing, what is the radiation, and, and so on and so forth, right? So all of these data feeds are very important for investor intelligence, basically, and driving the value of, of the asset. So for me, tokens are sort of say smart shares, if you want to say so. And and, sure. and hence, if you want to tokenize these real world assets, then for sure, IoT comes into play. Yeah. Now, every yeah. of these big industry assets is already either already implementing or thinking about how can we use AI for predictive maintenance, uh, for better forecasting and so on and so forth. Yeah. That, that, sure. That's one, okay. uh, um, one thing where, where it comes to play. Um, the, the other part is where I'm, pretty excited about and, and that's a use case that's already in existence today um it, it's get it gets better every day and every day um but it's this entire idea you know of democratization of wealth management through the intersection of yes. ai and crypto yeah do, do you see any practical like startups coming out from it oh 100 like just 100 i mean yeah. uh there there are so first of all maybe um this entire idea of using machine learning as it was called a few years ago right um, or statistics or however you want to call it um, for trading is it has been in the playbook of most yeah. of the trading firms anyways right so most of the prop traders had their own bots or algorithmic traders and so on yeah um, but I think since the since the rise of let's say AI and digital assets there are really a couple of very interesting startups coming out and and one of one of the guys I mean I like them very much is is wisdomize uh, what these what these okay. guys are doing is basically, the vision is to democratize wealth management. So they trained a uh, an AI model, which is generative and predictive, and that basically can okay. make calls on uh, on positions on a certain set of trained underlyings. Now it's crypto. They're also moving into commodities and so on. And that would allow, in theory, everyone on the planet to just connect their wallet, dedicate whatever fund you have, $10, $50, $1,000, and connect to the trading AI that they have and have passive income. I think that's a very, very, I mean, if, if this works out the way it's intended, this, if this exactly, works out. then this is a very, very powerful use case, right? Yeah. Yeah, look, uh, I'm with you. So in one of my episodes, I had Professor Wasandar from NYU on the podcast, and uh, I studied systematic trading, machine learning and trading uh, through him. And uh, he's been in the AI space for like since 1979. So he, he's like an OG when it comes to artificial intelligence. One of the lectures, he had invited the company from US Wealthfront and uh, BlackRock, a professional from BlackRock who actually helps Wealthfront in designing those index portfolios in order to, you know, basically allow passive investing by uh, clients, uh, by US clients, for, for US clients. And uh, during that discussion, and I had this discussion again with Professor Thur, is that the half-life of these trading bots is like it's it's not much it it runs out because the whole concept about trading is a strategy runs out after a few months uh back in the day in the 80s uh you know people used to do trend following but now trend following doesn't necessarily work as a trading strategy unless you're hodling bitcoin but yeah jokes apart. i think long term there might i would still say say there's a case for trends right but okay yeah please go ahead and finish your, your point and then i yeah yeah so i have in my humble opinion i haven't seen 
seen a publicly available trading bot that has worked consistently over time. I have not seen it. But yes, if somebody is able to crack it now with the ability of having, uh, you know, all these uh, very high computational large language models and generative AI models and predictive models, uh, if somebody can crack it so that it adapts with the changing market conditions and sentimental conditions, uh, then yeah, that's that's a great tool to have. But what would happen to all the wealth managers in Dubai and London? Then? Well, I mean, that, that's my point, right? I mean, if, if that really goes through, then every wealth manager that is not using such a system yes. is, is definitely going to be, I mean, probably not out of business, don't want to be that dramatic, but I mean, it's probably losing the top spots to a certain extent. Yeah, but yeah, I, I really think like I mean to touch on your point on on the on the trading and the and the trends. Um, and I'm I'm borrowing this from CTO Larson. I'm not sure if you know him. Um, also very famous. I, I do. I have read about. Yeah, yeah. I, he he brings always like one one I think really compelling point is that um, humans have always been wrong at two things when predicting technology. Uh, one yeah. is we overestimate how quick it will yes. go up and how quick the implementation and adaptation from that is. And that's this is actually why in the hype lagards uh, in sorry in the Gartner hype cycle we always see you know this curve and then it falls down because everyone was expecting yes. way more adoption than everyone is is uh, so to say delusional about it that's one thing but the other thing we get wrong then is the significant of the impact that the technology then has when it's going to be rolled out yeah sure and i, th I think we're seeing yeah. the same thing with crypto right now by the way but to my point of the, the trading part I think it makes sense from a, if you trade long term to follow certain indicators, follow certain trends that you that you are with. Great. But short term, I really believe there is absolutely no way for for any human being to compete with AI in the short term. In short term time frame trading, it's just not possible. Yeah, yeah totally agreed with you. Yeah, I, I was uh, uh, you know talking more about the short term trading. Like if the trading bot is like uh, executing trades like on a daily basis, then I haven't seen a consistently performing trading bot ever in yeah. my life but there would be in you know proprietary hedge funds they would be having those bots but to have it available to the public i haven't seen that consistently performing short-term trading yeah. Bot. but yeah i'm totally with you so uh i i think uh, uh i have i have heard this statement that is articulated very well and you articulated it very well as well quite often people overestimate the impact of innovation in the short term and underestimate it over the long exactly. terms and that's pretty much what you're saying so i, I totally agree with there when it comes to innovation. AI will fall into the same trap now, right? I mean, everyone thinks now yeah. AI will do everything tomorrow, right? It's not the case. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm totally with you on there as well. Now, coming back to a little bit on geography, you have got experience working in Europe. Now you've been in the Middle East for quite some time as well. What excites you most about the crypto landscape emerging in the Middle Eastern region, especially outside Dubai, since we are hearing a lot of talks about you know, sovereign wealth funds from Oman. I think Saudi Arabia is also thinking about setting something around the Bitcoin mining infrastructure and investing billions of dollars there. So what are what is your take about the excitement about Web3 and crypto in the Middle Eastern regions outside uh, the Emirates? Outside the Emirates. Um, so I would still say the Emirates is the the driving force and the hotspot, without a doubt, by sure. a long shot. Yeah. Okay. And that obviously also affects the surrounding countries. Um, I think you you probably have seen in the news that um, last week or the week before, it was finally officially disclosed that Oman is investing into 800 megawatts of Bitcoin mining capacity. Yeah. yeah. Um, before that, uh, again, coming back to the Emirates, before that, Abu Dhabi also announced a significant portion yes. of Bitcoin mining uh, megawatts dedicated. So 
this region, I'm pretty certain of that, that this region in four or five years or even earlier will hold a significant portion of the entire global hash rate of Bitcoin. Of the Bitcoin well, okay. Right? And we know how, how you know, flexible the Bitcoin network is in moving from location to location, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So my view is that that um, the openness of, of most of the governments in the Middle East towards driving a change and really setting an agenda with innovation topics will just lead to the fact that um, this region will become, if not the hotspot, at least a significant hotspot for uh, for Web3 digital assets. Um, Saudi, you mentioned Saudi. Um, Saudi so far hasn't done a lot on this. Um, yeah. But obviously, if you look at the uh, all the other initiatives that Saudi Arabia is kicking off or is, is running since since a while, it's like very impressive the, the amount of speed and, and change yes. they, they, are, they are pushing. So I'm, I'm very sure that as soon as digital asset becomes a, an official theme, that this is going to lead to a massive disruption uh, over there. But also, yeah. if you look at reports from um, from crypto usage in the region, then um, yes. because we have a very young population here compared to Europe, right? I mean, our age pyramid here is sure. literally uh, a pyramid, not like in in Europe where it's it's actually upside down, right? No, nope, so, so you have a yeah. lot of people already engaging in digital assets. And, yeah, um, yeah. So I'm I'm very. Um, I'm very optimistic when it comes to that. Yeah, look, totally. I think I was reading just the other day that uh, Dubai was ranked at number three when it comes to crypto adoption. It was only behind Switzerland and uh, Switzerland and Singapore when it comes to crypto adoption. It was either that or when it comes to crypto infrastructure. One of these three, but it was in top three. Dubai. I think I, th I saw the headline as well. Um, I think it even said UAE was number one, but um, I haven't actually read the article in, in detail. Yeah, um, okay. Well, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if this is true. Um, but then on the other hand, I, I, I still think the race is still on, right? Regardless of me being very optimistic yeah. about the Middle East, um, the race is still on. Europe took a very long time to get their act together on a regulation. Now Mika is out. That's a perfect platform yeah. for institutions to now build build. Uh, their products, build their offerings and so on. And hence, I, I think it's really hard to make a bet on, on which region is really pushed forward, pushing yeah. forward. If I would yes. just go by, you know, the, the mindset that you feel, then I would yes. rather bet money on this on the Middle East than on Europe these days. With the, with regard to this Talk. topic. No? Yeah. yeah, yeah, look, totally. And I think uh, the fact that uh, Middle East governance is centralized and uh, European is more bureaucratic and more democratized in their decision making, that uh, that also acts as a factor. Uh, but yeah, like uh, I had Chloe White, who's one of the, you know, Massive thought leaders in the global regulatory space, and uh, she told me that her experience dealing with uh, ministers and advisors with Vara was that they are super forward-thinking, and uh, yeah, they're like total visionaries on how they want to shape uh, these emerging technologies within the economy. So uh, yeah, even I'm also getting the vibes that maybe I should now move to the Middle East as well. <laughs> Join us. <laughs> But I mean, <laughs> what you're saying is, is, is for me also like personally, it was the reason why, I mean, I'm here since 2000, end of 2013, right? There were many occasions yep. where, you know, I, I had the opportunity to, to go back to Europe or even go to the US. Yes. I deliberately decided to stay here um, because the minute I arrived, and I, you could feel, you know, this this kind of mentality and vibe that, oh, man, something is going to happen here. There is a very forward-looking government. But you get, I mean, we have an yes. AI minister since, I think since 2017-ish or something. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe 18 oh, wow. or 19. I didn't know that. We have an AI minister in the first place, right? So, wow. 
Okay, so you, you see all of these very forward-looking topics being picked up on the government level, and that really drives down activity, not only in the public sector, but also in the private sector. Yeah. Yeah. What do you deep dive on the private sector yeah. that you've mentioned? Now, yes, uh, from uh, the public enterprise and public decision-making point of view, Middle East is doing everything like pro-future tech in a lot of ways. But uh, we don't necessarily hear about the Middle Eastern region when it comes to the amount of private capital being raised for the domestic startup scene. Like US is number one when it comes to its vibrant startup economy, then China is there. We hear about India a lot, that they've got like a massive startup economy as well. Israel is big as well. Singapore, Hong Kong. Where do you see Dubai or the Middle Eastern region as a whole coming up and uh, giving fight to these massive startup hubs when it comes to come and build your startup over here. And then we start hearing news like Dubai is like the startup capital of the world, or it's one of the startup capitals of the world. Do you see that happening soon as well? Or is it already happening? It, it is already happening, but it's, I think it's still in, in, in early stages, if you, you know, would compare it to Silicon Valley or to Israel, like, which is the kind of hotspot for that, right? Yeah. That is still in early stages. However, it's not like they started only yesterday. So just to give you a comparative figure yeah. as well, like if you if you might look at the total amount of VC investments, then yes, it's it's small in the UAE, for instance, or in Saudi. Um, but if you look at the relative investment, for instance, of what of the VC investments that are happening in Dubai compared to the GDP, it's already at the one yes. percent mark. Yeah, oh, well, and the US okay. is I don't know. The US might be one point five percent or something. But it, it's not bad for you know it's it's punching above its weight it. already. Um, yes. And what you definitely see uh, in Saudi and in particular in the UAE, there are many, many government-driven uh, startup hubs that are opening that are already open. There are VC strategies laid out by by the ministries of investments and so on. So there is a very clear target of of the regional governments to get this scene established in the Middle East. Now, as you know, I mean, it, it always takes, it, it, it doesn't only Let's take a government to set set a bit of funding and dedicate a bit of real estate. It's also to a certain extent, a very organic movement that needs to happen to create a startup, yes. right? You need a critical yeah. community, a community, you need academia, you need affordable living as well, yes. right? Um, to a certain yes. extent, right? So... Um, but having said that, um, I'm also very certain that um, maybe it doesn't become the hotspot of the world, but I'm pretty sure that it will definitely outcompete um, a few of the uh, countries that are now ranked higher. Sure, sure. Look, I didn't know that, but that is uh, that is a huge number. Like if the startup economy is also already contributing 1% to the GDP, like it's that's the size, then uh, it's, uh, the it's a pretty sizable the amount. Investment. Of yeah, the investment. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah that, that's pretty impressive. And, sorry, maybe just, just yes. give you one, one, one other let's say indicative figure on this so um, what we do is we we on an annual basis we collect the, the data about how many digital asset and web 3 companies are in the UAE we started this with our mm. partners crypto oasis um, they're, they're mainly running this report um, and in 2020 um, the number was 300 something right now the number is 1650 or something massive growth mm. right yes yes yeah that's a massive growth true I, I want to touch upon innovation 
large. We've spoken mostly about crypto, Web3 and so forth. It's fair to say that most of the innovative companies, innovative private companies that we see still come majorly from the US. A lot of reasons for it. You know, it could be the culture, it could be the capital, the ease of capital. It's, uh, you know, the risk taking culture that they have, the cheap credit that they had for a decade and so forth. It's a lot of reasons for that. So US is definitely like, I don't see anybody displacing US when it comes to, you know, producing more innovative companies anytime soon. That's just my humble opinion. But then we hear a lot about Singapore. We hear a lot about Israel. We hear a lot about China, India as well. Are you thinking that Dubai is going to probably give a run for its money to all these other four centers when it comes to being competitive in producing those innovative companies that come out to the world but originate from uh, the Middle Eastern region? Well, I mean, I would say in Dubai has proven time after time that everything is possible. Yeah, that's right? true. So I wouldn't rule it out that that's actually the case at the end. Um, but I think, I mean, it, it depends on so many factors. I think that um, Dubai would not yeah. have under control, right? That, uh, that, it's, that is hard to predict. As I mentioned, talents, um, academia, um, and so on. But maybe, you know, uh, it's also more of a question of um, will people will still be attracted in the next five to 10 years to go to Silicon Valley? I mean, I, I'm, I'm hearing at least less and less interest to go there, yes. right? Obviously, like kind of the, the champion spot for, for startups just because of the capital. I mean, and the amount of capital you can raise in the US compared to anywhere else in the world is just insane, right? Yeah, true. So um, I can't give you a yes or no, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if at least they put on a good fight. Yeah. Yeah, look, totally. Uh, so you've been based out of Dubai since 2013, Yeah, right? end of 2013, I moved here. So you, I believe that Dubai, like a lot of people among my circle, whether in Australia or even in India, they believe that Dubai at the moment is enjoying a bad kind of a success. Like everybody's talking about Dubai mm -hmm. and that's probably because of what happened last year geopolitically. And we saw inflation everywhere. And Dubai is kind of like, uh, we're not seeing inflation that much, but I went to Dubai. Dubai is a very expensive city. The rents yeah. over there are crazy. Yeah. So it's not like Dubai hasn't experienced inflation. It's just that the purchasing power for people who work there is very high. So they don't see that impact as much as people in Europe are seeing because of the, you know, like no growth in wages for so many years and, or US for that matter. So my question to you is like, as somebody who has seen Dubai since 2013 and saw it evolve, in my one month of visit in Dubai uh, this year, I witnessed that Dubai is enjoying the success what it has now is not a fad. It's actually because of a very consistent vision that they had since early 2000. And they're just focused on building. Like they had this thought that I learned in sports economics at NYU that people said, build a stadium in US and people would come. And I think that Dubai had that similar approach that we'll build something great that nobody has ever built with the most fanciest and, you know, cutting edge infrastructure for their citizens and people would come. And I believe that's what the dividend that they are, you know, reaping now. Would you agree to that? 100%. And that can be seen in so many instances. And it even started earlier than, than 2000s, right? So yeah, that's, I mean, when, when, when Dubai started thinking about building an airport, like everyone was saying, like from the outside, like, why, why would you do this? Right? And then they built the next airport and the bigger airport and an even bigger airport. And now Dubai is one of the central travel traveling hubs or the UAE in general, right? Yes. 
And Dubai has taken this, I think what the, what, the, what the UAE in general has done remarkably well is taking this idea of building hubs, travel hubs, financial hubs, trade hubs, whatever, and building infrastructure for this in a large scale that would accommodate a lot of people. And then, yeah, I mean, sometimes then time is on your side, but I, I mean, I really wouldn't consider this luck. I mean, this is a, as you said, as you rightfully said, like it's a conscious risk-taking decision, believing in a vision and then building the infrastructure for this. Yeah. And indeed, now now you're ready to welcome everyone. Now you're ready to kind of um, benefit from the infrastructure that you've built. Yeah. Now, we are also witnessing the other major economy of the region, Saudi Arabia, opening up. And they are building uh, with a lot more investment, with, I would say, theoretically larger visions, especially Riyadh. They're, they're making it very big. And, uh, you know, Roland Berger, has got like massive presence in the Saudi Arabian region as well. And you're a very senior leader in the company. So you're interested to get your take as to having been early in the Dubai development scene and now seeing Saudi Arabia doing something similar, but only started it like a few years ago. Do you see Saudi Arabia or at least Riyadh eventually becoming like Dubai? Or is it going to take some time? Is it going to be quicker? What is your take on that? Riyadh versus Dubai? It's an interesting question that um, I, I think everyone kind of immediately has uh, is debating or has on their mind so I think my, my view on this is Dubai and Riyadh are very, very different, right? So I don't think Riyadh yeah. will become a Dubai that will not work. I think that therefore Dubai has just a very, very unique story. And also like the size of Dubai compared to Riyadh also plays into, into that role as well. I, I think Dubai or the UAE have, because of their size, have, have shown in, in many, many adverse situations how quickly they can adapt. I mean, this entire yes. uh, COVID topic was, was also something where I think Dubai handled this fantastic because they were able to move around very, very quickly and make decisions on the spot. Um, Riyadh is, is a really big city and Saudi Arabia is a huge country, right? So um, I don't think it will, you know, replace Dubai in, in terms of like people would either choose to live there or there. I think it's it, they will mutually okay. benefit from each other because then now all of a sudden it's right. not only, if, I mean, I'm, I'm talking now more for the, for the kind of Western expats, you know, that would place yes. in the Middle East. And of course, if you ask probably a hundred of them, then still 95 would say, yeah, I want to live in the UAE, right? That is yeah. changing. Yeah. That is changing for sure. So, and I think the entire region will benefit from having probably two locations that are attractive to live, attractive to work, where you can work exciting stuff. Um, but I think, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit biased now being based in the UAE for so long, having my, my, my friends here as well. I think the UAE cannot be copied in that sense. And and by the way, I don't think that that, that is actually what Saudi Arabia is trying to do. They're building their own legacy. They're building their own very impressive stuff. Yes. No. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, look, uh, you're seeing the enthusiasm after living in Embus even after ten years. So a lot of people, you know, get bored of the region yeah. after they live for ten years. <laughs> but seeing that enthusiasm and endorsement from you, I think uh, a lot of my students would be like, after graduation, let's look out for Dubai. <laughs> <laughs> you should definitely. I mean, you should definitely come and, and see it with your own eyes. And I think this is. Yeah. That's what I actually, you know, I've been telling most of my uh, my colleagues from Europe over the time, right? Uh, don't talk about it. Just come here and witness it for yourself, right? And I haven't seen a single one of them that, that hasn't left the country with like, oh man, this completely changed my perception of what this place is actually going to look like. I mean, this is, and yeah. they were impressed, right? Well, yeah. Likewise, when I came to Dubai, it was my first time I came and I was so impressed. Yeah. Like, so it was so clean. The city was so clean and uh, like there was, uh, you know, the main roads where there's so much of traffic and on the right hand side I see three peacocks I'm like I 
you don't see that. So it was a great city. It was very safe. I felt very safe even at nighttime when I was going yeah. out and a very diverse, very diverse demographic of people living there. Yeah. There are a lot of Europeans. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, the scene, and th this is, I think, the very interesting thing that surprises a lot of people. This city is a melting yeah. pot of so many cultures, so many religions living peacefully together, right? And, yes. and that is another element of Dubai that is just, or of the UAE in general, that, that is really amazing, right? Yeah, totally. Now, I'm interested to now change the topic to something that I find really interesting to study. But I do not ask these questions often to people, but you seem like an individual that would have a very, you know, interesting take to it and a very knowledgeable take into it as well. Given your vast global experience, diversified cultural experience. What's your take on Generation Alpha, the people that are born between 2010 to 2024. How would this generation growing up immersed in crypto, AI, and Web3 shape their worldview and aspirations? That's a that's a very interesting question. Um, and I, obviously it can go in multiple directions, right? But maybe, you know, my initial thoughts on this is like everyone that belongs to that generation is a digital native on steroids, right? I mean, exactly. we've been talking about yeah. digital natives in the previous generations, people that grew up with yeah. iPhones and iPads, but I mean, this is a whole another level in the sense yeah. that you're not only using technology. My view is that this generation is integrated with technology, right? Exactly. And yeah. that can be good and bad, right? And uh, good and bad in the sense that I really think that we would need to adopt um, educational systems, right? Because certain skills might get lost along the way because you have a fundamental yeah. integration with technology. Um, that's why, by the way, I, I think really like if we, if we think about talent of the future, the, the most relevant skills you need to teach are empathy and creativity. So true. Right? Yeah. And obviously a critical mindset. So you understand, I mean, if you work with AI, you need to have a critical mindset because you need to judge if, if your co-pilot has actually given you a help or if he's hallucinating, right? So... So, so, so that is going to be interesting. Then the second part, um, next to that digital integration is, I think it's also going to be, maybe we call it, you know, like fluid in realities, right? I mean, there's a fluidity between the digital realm and the, and the real world, so to say. Um, okay. and that can be, you know, overlays on how we see the world. I mean, we will see where spatial computing is going to take us in the next 10 years. Right? Yes. I mean, I find it highly likely that one point in time, you know, augmentation of your reality is, is a very standard thing. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. And, and that also then means that your 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 digital persona for for this generation becomes much much more important than for the generations before. And it might even to a certain extent, and I mean I, I hope for humanity we don't go that way. That your digital persona becomes even more important than your real persona, right? I get what you're saying. This is yeah. why I said like empathy is such an important concept to to teach in critical thinking to to ensure that you know, there's character yes. building and so on. Yeah, because I think. Being born in this generation is an is an amazing thing because you have you are exposed to technology that the previous generation couldn't have dreamt or dreamed about. Right? Totally. But also it brings such an important responsibility to ensure that this generation is equipped with, you know, the right skills to handle all of this. Yeah, look, great points. And I'm in total agreement with you. Like they are living in technological nirvana. Like they are gonna be born and they do not need to unlearn like a lot of people from their previous generation need to unlearn or 
comes to adapting with these technologies. They're just going to be, like you said, immersed and integrated with it, that it'll be like natural. Exactly. Dealing with these technologies. When you were answering this, uh, it, I wanted to get your take that how big of a role is psychology going to play in the development of the knowledge professional of the future? Because if you, just to give you some context, like I don't think we learn psychology enough when, you know, when we are doing our bachelor's degree or master's degree. Yes, we, you know, we learn marketing, but learning, learning psychology as part of the marketing subject is like 1% of the entire psychology subject. So because we are saying that now for this generation, technology, like they do not need to learn technology technology, like how we, till a certain extent, had to learn technology, you know, growing up. These guys, kids of 2010 to 2024, wouldn't need to learn technology because they'll be handed the phone and they'll learn it themselves. So how important the role of educating psychology to this generation will play in developing them as a knowledge professional? I think pretty important. And um, I mean, now you open the topic, right? <laughs> you open the topic of yeah. what is it that we actually don't learn in our education? I think psychology yeah. for sure is one um, missing yeah. philosophy. We've been missing, you know, ethical training. We've been in particular missing all the economic principles about money that are yes. not true. Personal right? finance. Personal finance. How does money work? Right. I mean, all of these very fundamental <laughs> money creation. Exactly. Totally. Missing. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> Nutrition as well is also not not really part of the schedule, yeah, right? So missing so many fundamental things um, where I would hope the, these would actually fat into the curriculum, if you want to say, of the new generation. Psychology for sure is 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 a very key element um, because, in particular, I think this generation probably. I mean, it's an assumption. We we might see if that's true, right? But I would assume they have way more or way less personal contact, personal interaction than the generations yes, before. Yes, right? they do, and yeah. that would even probably be, be amplified if we really get into an augmented world or metaverse kind of uh, world where you really need to be self-aware of how you function and how your, your counterparty functions, right? Um, yeah. And then, I mean, you, the psychology part then also plays into into the entire AI part, right? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty certain we're going to interact Probably. with a lot of AI avatars in the future, right? So yeah. uh, if you interact with them as a human being, you need to understand how, um, how reactions are created and so on. So, but what's your view? You, you, do you think it's going to be important? Yeah, look, I think it... I believe it's already important that we should showcase that because I feel like we've got a lot of wisdom, we've got a lot of creativity, but the thing missing in the world just now is compassion. And compassion wouldn't come without any empathy. Yeah. Uh, so if you're empathetic, you'll be compassionate. And so I think it should already be part, but you know, the topics that you mentioned in addition to psychology, nutrition, money creation, personal finance, I've had so many, and I'm sure with your network of people as well, like I've got so many friends in Australia who are doctors, lawyers, but have no clue on how to manage their personal finance. And same thing in India as well now. Uh, so there are so many subjects that are so basic in the human development uh, once people grow up that are just not there. And they figure it out themselves. And by that time, it's too late, uh, you know, because there are other responsibilities there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think it's very important. Whether it will be addressed, I do not know. Yeah, but uh, touching on that point, I think, I mean, this is why I try to, you know, <laughs> Shill everyone the the Bitcoin Standard Book that I that I of come course, across, yes. right? Not because I want to, you know, convince them about Bitcoin. I mean, I and I even tell it to them, like, don't read it because of Bitcoin, but just read it. You know, yeah. have some inner dialogue about what do you think is actually money and how it has been created, right? 
because ultimately, yes. and I think this is probably a one of the key competences, or that I would be my wish for the new generation to have this is is a thought of being self sovereign and having a choice, yes. at least a deliberate choice, where they want to be self sovereign and where not. Yeah. yeah, look, I'm totally with you there. I wrote the book on history and evolution of money under Professor Ian D'Souza, and uh, I also, as part of doing that, I came across the Bitcoin Standard, and it's a fantastic book. It's a fantastic book. Everybody should read it, not because it's a Bitcoin book, but it gives you a good it gives you a good understanding of what money was, what money is, and what money should be according to the author. Exactly. I just have one take on it, and it's um, you know since we've got some time, would love to have this thought experiment with you. We've got the Bitcoin maximalists who think that Bitcoin will solve all the world's problems. I consider myself like, like a a closet Bitcoin maximalist because I do believe that there is Bitcoin, and then there is other cryptos. Like I don't think Bitcoin has a competition. Other cryptocurrencies could have a competition, but I don't think Bitcoin is a competition. It's bulletproof money, according to... But having said that, the Great Depression told us that having something like a hard money uh, has its limitation as well, because then you do not have the flexibility to solve some of the crisis. So I also off the view that replacing the current central banking system would not be a thoughtful thing to do and just going to the Bitcoin standard. So I think there needs to be a hybrid model where, yes, as a private citizen, having the ability to hold a Bitcoin in a self-custodial manner, that is great. That is separating money from the state, or at least that is giving the option to separate money from the state. And we've seen how when we separated religion from the state, how much abundance we saw as a society. So similarly, I also believe in the opinion, although it's a very controversial opinion in some countries, including India, where I'm living in just now. But uh, like, I also believe that money should be separated from the state, or at least it's an experiment that we should look at. And if we are going to experiment, then I don't see any other instrument apart from Bitcoin that can help us do that. So from that point of view, Bitcoin is a good experiment in monetary economics, and we should let it ha let it flow. But on the other hand, I also think that the monetary system that we've got of this whole central bank creation, after the 1971 Richard Nixon's decision to remove the gold backing, we've reached now a point of no return. And we need the central bankers and economists who've got the positional powers to do something, to be creative now to come up with a solution. And I don't think increasing interest rates is going to be that solution. I 100% agree. I 100% agree with that. And um, I mean, I would also wish, if I mean, if I could make a, a wish choice about a scenario, um, that is not going to be an either or, because I think even though, I mean, I would be totally fine with a Bitcoin standard, 100%, right? But I came to the yeah. conclusion over the past years that um, I think the majority of people would not be fine with a, a entirely self-sovereign asset system, Agreed. right? Yeah. But I think this revolution of a self-sovereign asset system needs to happen in the sense that it's a choice. It's a deliberate choice, right? Agreed. Um, Agreed. I think if we would just, you know, move now from to a Bitcoin standard overnight, I mean, I think a lot of people would just be scared, right? So they would and, and be, people yeah. want to have sometimes conscious sometimes not not conscious they want to have people taking over their sovereignty in certain aspects of their life and if it's a little bit worse, that's yes. fine right so but i mean yeah. this entire topic and uh, this is probably worth uh, even another episode is uh, you know we're talking we should do yeah, that maybe we should do it yeah exactly um talking about you know what happened what was what's the model that's going to play out for nation states right i mean you you, you read Absolutely. the network state as well right i did so i, did. I find this yeah. idea super intriguing right and um 
I also don't think it's going to be either or, but I think we're definitely going to see a network state-ish kind of movement going to happen. Maybe we don't call it state, but more clubs or something, right? Um, yeah. But, but that's another entire interesting, uh, let's say, societal shift. So, so look, first of all, two things. I'm totally, you know, open and it'll be great to, uh, in the coming months, whenever you get time, come on the pod again and talk about that. I'll tell you something about interesting thing about network okay. state. So I had the former finance secretary of India on the podcast like a few weeks ago and I released the episode as well. But when I went to his residence and I spent some time with him before I invited him on the podcast, I asked him because he's also got his opinion about cryptocurrencies uh, since he was in the government, uh, you know, making decisions around this. Now he's retired. So I spoke to him that uh, whether he's a uh, uh, red network state from Balaji mm -hmm. and he said that he has heard about it. He's heard about Balaji and uh, what his views are. And uh, he's uh, like drilling down and reading more about it so that he can have an informed opinion to make commentary about it. It would be great if, uh, you know, he's... He, you, me, all three of us talk about the future of network state because he did say that he's, you know, he also believes that in the future, like after a few decades, the concept of network state is going to be more profound than what it is now. 100%. L let's do it. I'm up for it. Right. So, and I think it's such an important topic well, uh, that I would hope, you know, this topic yeah. also provokes a lot of thoughts in people, right? Yes. So, yeah. yeah, totally. Look, okay, leave that with me. I've got a task now. I don't get generally tasked after a podcast, but I've got one. I'll uh, ask him whether uh, he would be cool to do that. Lastly, Pierre, really, you know, wanting to know this, and this is mostly for my students. So I'm a visiting professor at a couple of business schools in India since I've come over here. It would be great learning for them and also for me as well, uh, since you're such a, you know, senior executive in management consulting and a whole lot of thought leadership in uh, Europe and Middle East. If you could go back to the beginning of your career and give yourself only one piece of advice, knowing what you know now, what would it be? <laughs> Buy Bitcoin. <laughs> jo jokes aside, that would for sure be an advice. But I mean, if you just want to think from a character development point of view, um, then I yeah. think it would be, um, you know, trust the journey, right? Trust um, the journey. Yeah. In the sense that, you know, sometimes things take a little longer to play out. Um, but yeah. the journey that you're on is already you know, part of, uh, part of getting where, where you want to go in that sense. Right. And yeah. I think if you are, if you have more trust in, in the journey while doing all the things that you, you want to do, uh, I think there is, I, I haven't seen in my own life and I haven't seen in the, the stories of my colleagues, any, um, any example where it didn't play out for the better. Yeah. So don't get nervous in between. That's probably the advice I would, I would give myself in addition to buying Bitcoin. That's great advice. I think both of them are great advice, but yeah, that advice is also pretty good. You should trust the journey. I think, yeah, I think Steve Jobs also said something similar when he came as a honorary that don't worry, in the end, the dots get connected somehow. Similar, exactly. Uh, so don't yeah, worry. Exactly. Yeah. Look, Pierre, thanks a lot. I really appreciate the time you've taken. I know that you were working today and then after work, you came and did the pod. So thanks a lot for coming on the Proof of Work podcast. Now, this was all the long form questions, but uh, in my podcast, I keep a final segment, which is a very playful segment called the rapid fire question okay. round, where I ask questions that warrants only one to three word responses or yes or no responses. You can choose to pass, but I think uh, knowing you, I think you'll answer all the questions. Let's go. Okay. Uh, let me just bring those up. Perfect. So whenever you're ready, I'll start with the rapid fire questions. Let's go. Cheeseburger or pizza? Pizza. Pizza. PC or Mac? Mac. Books or podcast? That's a tough one, actually. But I would say books. Books. God. I shouldn't ask this, but I'll ask. Bitcoin or Ethereum? <laughs> if I have to choose, Bitcoin. If you give me the option, I take, take both. 
go-to karaoke song? I think that's something I really need to pass. I've never done karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Favorite dad joke? Oof. I, I unfortunately also need to pass that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a tough yeah. one. If somebody would have asked me, I, I, I would have uh, couldn't come up with any. Well. Favorite movie? The Matrix. Oh yeah, great one. I love Matrix. It's but yeah. only the first part. I think but, it's, it's it's you know one of these kind of movie series that got worse and worse with every episode. Yeah, but I mean number one is yeah. just legendary and and it's yeah, yeah. true. Agreed. It's uh, I, I'll tell you. So I was only ten year old when I saw Matrix for the first time. I didn't understand it, but I was wowed by the special effects. It's only when I entered college i may be a late bloomer in philosophy and all that but when i was in college and i saw matrix again in one of the dorm movie nights i started seeing the profound philosophical undertone within the movie like it's so philosophical that movie so yeah it's one of my favorites yeah. as well chess or poker chess most underrated city according to you most underrated it depends on who you ask right uh, i would say because whatever city i name they're going to be offended that i call them underrated but <laughs> but I would actually say, I mean, Zurich, um, <laughs> well known, but I, I don't hear a lot of people, you know, going there, uh, but I really love Zurich. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't actually, I've heard only good things about Zurich, yeah. but fair enough. You think it's still underrated. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Time travel back in time to dinosaurs or in future to cyborgs? Future. I'm not future. interested at all in dinosaurs. <laughs> No Jurassic no. Park, no paleontology. No, I want to see, see the Terminator T2. So, <laughs> got it. What is one mindset shift that changed your life? Um, I would. I think it relates a bit back to what I what I said. Um, you know, when you asked me about the advice, like trust the journey. As soon as you figure that journey. out and you have you know enough um, positive examples in your life that you can trust on 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 this, then things get way way easier and way way relaxed. And and I think the the main point that goes with that is you know more focus on the presence than the past and the future yeah if you could pick any superpower which would you choose um is is time travel i think that i would pick yeah, yeah. got it time yeah. travel so uh since you mentioned that you want to go to future to cyborgs i'm now interested that since you've got the superpower hypothetically through time travel if you have to go back to history which historic period would you go to and which part of the world oh i think there's so many you know because i i think there's so many parts of the history that i would love to see with my own eyes rather than you know reading about yeah. it and then um you know reading a yeah. a story on how someone think it looked like right yeah you have to pick only one though Let, let's yeah. just pick uh the the, the ancient Egypt times. Oh, I mean, I would love to see with my yeah, own eyes how, how it really went down, right? So, yeah. The most brilliant thinker more people should know about. Um, I would say, I mean, the guy's not alive anymore, um, but it's Immanuel Kant, one of the, the German philosophers, which I find got very, very important for people to know about and to know about the thinking on, again, comes a bit to the self-sovereignty part and, you know, um, got it. And, and being more mindful about uh, the capabilities of the mind and so on. I will definitely read it up because philosophy is a subject that I self-teach myself yeah. a lot. And uh, I'm interested to get your take, and this is not rapid fire, but interested to get your take. History has brought so many profound philosophers from all kinds of the world. There are great German philosophers, Greek philosophers, uh, American philosophers, British, French, all 
great philosophers of our time have been in history. I do not know whether you would agree or not, but do you see there has been a dearth of original philosophical thinking since the Industrial Revolution? 100%, 100%. I mean, it has been, unfortunately, a decline of so many kind of disciplines, right? Arts, philosophy, and so on and so forth. Yeah. I don't have the answer why why that is the case, um, but is that I, I 100% agree that the the thinking died out a bit, right? I yeah. see, I see yeah. though a new wave of potential renaissance of philosophy coming coming up, which is more about you know philosophy about um, the v- virtual realities, digital reality, you know that tr- triggered the entire yeah. thought of you, what Go. is real, what is reality. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, but I agree. So yeah, you're right. You you brought a good insight that the modern day philosophy has been like around this virtual reality. Like for example, the concept of metaverse, which was started in the '60s. I mean, the word was later on in neuromancer yeah. in the '80s. But like before that, people didn't like they spoke about the concept of metaverse, just didn't just not with that word, uh, even in the '60s. So yeah, and this whole concept about simulation theory, like we are living in a yeah. simulation. Do you think we are living? in a simulation well uh i would not be comfortable enough to say no let me put it like that <laughs> right so got it got it that's a good answer <laughs> yeah cool look my last question for the podcast episode here thanks a lot again what quality do you most admire in a leader uh can only pick one one element and it's optimism yeah Optimism. i think the the primary task of a, of a, of someone that leads someone or a group of people is to of course keep them safe as well but you know to activate yeah. them and i think for for, for someone to be able to activate other people you need to have you need to have an optimism you need to carry the flag right uh, yeah. not like um naive but you need to have optimism and and second part is obviously you need to have the empathy to understand like how is the group thinking how are they people thinking what do they need and and how can they get activated i really believe like uh, the ideal leader is someone that can activate others rather than tell them what to do yeah agreed totally here uh this was the proof of work podcast i really want to thank you this was i had a lot of insightful discussions with you that was fulfilling very deep so really thank you for taking out the time how was your proof of work podcast experience amazing again thanks for thanks for having me i was just looking at the time and i didn't didn't realize uh it passed already so uh speaks for good conversation so thanks for having me it was entirely my pleasure and uh, I'll get in touch with you again and also with Subhash Chandragarhar and see whether we can do the three-way conversation on network state from our respective angles I'll try to make that happen but again Pierre look thanks a lot really appreciate thank it thank you so much